0: Have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, I could explain this to someone else, but maybe there's a few things that I want explained back to me. I'll be sitting down with authors, thought leaders, visionaries. I'm your host, Josh Lipstone. This is Explain This Book to Me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Josh Lipstone, and this is Explain This Book To Me. Today is book three, episode three. I am once again joined by the author of the book, Influence People, Brian Ahern. Brian, can you tell the loyal readers more about your company, Influence People, what you offer, who is the best fit for what you offer, and do you have anyone else that works with you in your company?
1: Sure. So I started Influence People uh, about a dozen years ago when I was working my day job, so to speak, at State Auto Insurance. Um. I left state auto insurance almost a couple years ago. I always knew this was what I was going to do with my career. And what I do, Josh, I teach people about the science of influence, the psychology of how to ethically persuade others. And I'm one of only 20 people in the world certified by Dr. Robert Cialdini, who happens to be the most cited living social psychologist on the planet when it comes to this topic. And I happen to be the only person in the insurance industry. So I can give a, an entirely unique experience to insurance companies and insurance agencies, when it comes to how do you apply this psychology very specifically to insurance sales for those on the company side, underwriting claims for sales reps and, and folks like that, because I spent 30 plus years in the industry. So what would I do? I work with people to help them understand the psychology with the goal of getting to uh, better results on the professional level. And I think you can experience a lot more peace and happiness at home when you employ uh, the things that I teach.
0: Very good. Now, is the company just you, or do you have uh, anyone else working with you?
1: It is just me, but there are 19 other Chaldini trainers around the world, and sometimes we work together
0: to uh,
1: bring in different perspectives.
0: Okay. Um, And as far as like one-on-one, do you do any one-on-one training, or is it more uh, working with agencies or companies?
1: Uh, I I kind of run the gamut. I I do a lot of public speaking. Uh I do corporate training where typically agencies or uh, companies bring me in and and train a subset of employees. I do consulting. Sometimes they say, here's the problem. How would you approach this? And then I also do coaching for individuals who might say, I don't have time to go to a workshop, but I really want to learn this. And can you help me in a Uh one-on-one setting?
0: Well, very good. Well, loyal readers, if you are interested, um, at the end, we'll provide Brian's contact information for you to get in touch with him to see if you're a good fit for his program, for influence people, and uh, if if he's a good fit for you. Now, for those of you who are keeping score at home, we are recording this episode on Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. And the next section of the book that we'll be discussing is other persuasion tools for your tool belt. Now before we get into today's episode, if you have not listened to the first two episodes, hit pause, go download them, listen to them, then come back to this episode. So let's go ahead and get started explaining this book to me. So the first tool that you write about in this section is the compare and contrast tool. And you write for the loyal readers that it's not the principle of influence, but rather a tool that they can use in conjunction with one or more principles of influence. And you write about the example of buying a piece of furniture. And in the example, the price is $999. But then the salesperson tells you that it's actually $799, which makes it a very good price. However, if the price you were first told was 599, but it's actually 799, then it's not a good deal and you're disappointed and that's because the comparison is high. Another example that you write about is the wine list at a restaurant and in that example, if the wine list begins with the $20 bottles and then works its way up or down, we'll say down, down to the $200 bottle, the $60 to $70 bottles seem expensive. However, If the list begins with the $200 bottle and then works its way down to the $20 bottle, then those $60 to $70 bottles appear to be a bargain. So with those two examples and wanting to to relate this back to the insurance world, how would you advise a personal lines agent to present options to a prospect. So one thing that we do in our agency, which we've been doing for several years with great success is using video proposals. So we record ourselves and our screen to review the proposals um, that we have for our clients. And up until now, the way we've always done it is we list their current company first um, in a chart and then list the rest of the companies in alphabetical order. So what would your advice be and how we should present these options to our uh, to our prospects as it relates to the compare and contrast tool
1: okay well there there's there's so many ways to do this Mm -hmm. Um, first of all i would say with the contrast phenomena unlike the principles of influence Mm -hmm. uh, those are can be very situational contrast is always always available because human beings are always making comparisons from one thing to another for example, if you were to tell me um, if you had a brother and, and that brother was uh, tall, you might say, yeah, my brother's really tall. Well, tall is relative. He uh-huh. might be taller than you. He might be taller than me. He may be a good bit shorter than my daughter's uh, friends. She's got a couple of friends whose fathers are 6'8 and 6'10. Wow. Um, what a fact would be is he's six foot 6'5. Uh-huh. So we're always making comparisons, tall, short, heavy, light, expensive, inexpensive, uh-huh. and where this can come into play for the insurance agent is depending on how you present what it is that you're offering so if you were asked to present multiple quotes i would always advise start with the most expensive quote that's Mm -hmm. probably with a better carrier with maybe higher coverage just more bells and whistles um if the insured says well that's too expensive that's more than what i'm paying for right now you can retreat to the next best, which by comparison, then Uh less expensive and looks more attractive. Now, there will be some people who will buy the most expensive because a lot of people equate price to quality. And they might say, well, if it's the most expensive, it's probably the best carrier. That's who I'm going to go for. But you and you'll have more people buying at that point than if you try to start low and and the term is upsell. Mm. Um, because the more that you add on, the more expensive it seems because the price continues to go up. Um, another application of this would be um, when you are trying to get people to increase their limits. Let's say somebody comes into your agency and they had $100,000 single limit mm-hmm. because their, their agency uh, never reviewed it with them. And you think that the right coverage would be $500,000 single limit. Now, most people would say, well, that's probably going to cost five times more. And I don't want to pay five times more. Mm-hmm. But You could easily approach it and say, you know, Josh, uh, I noticed that your, your limits are only uh, $100,000. I think that's way too low in today's market. My suggestion, based on my experience, is $500,000. Now, you're probably thinking five times more coverage, it's going to cost five times more. That's not the case. And then you share how much more it costs, and it seems small compared to what they're getting.
0: That makes sense.
1: So, so that's that's how you start strategically thinking about how am I going to position what I'm offering so that by comparison, it looks like it's the best deal. And I will go back to this, what we talked about earlier, because you're coming to know and like your customers, you're always putting forth what you believe is in their best interest. So then the key becomes, how do I talk about that?
0: Mm, that makes sense. That makes sense. So... Yeah. So starting high, going low because you can retreat. All right. Good advice. Um, So you continue your writing with a word of caution for the loyal readers. And that word of caution is that if your opening offer is too high, it can actually have the reverse effect on people. And when you're doing this, you need to do so in an ethical manner and not in a manipulative manner. You then write about how comparing and contrasting numbers and features will build upon reciprocity, which is what we discussed in our last episode. And as a quick reminder, the principle of reciprocity is based upon the mutual exchange of something tangible or intangible. Now, Brian, since you spent your career on the carrier side, can you offer any advice or guidance to the agent listening to this podcast on how they can use the compare and contrast tool when talking with an underwriter about a commercial lines account, maybe how should they approach that conversation when they're trying to win a prospect and will need the carriers help with maybe coverage and price offerings.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, first, let me say this, even though I did spend all my time on the carrier side, my wife mm-hmm. was an insurance agent for three years. She had started okay. on, the, on the company side. Her family has been in the insurance industry for uh some 120 years. Wow. So my nest, my nephews, mm-hmm. uh, some of my brother-in-laws. Uh, so I've, I've, I've heard the whole agency side for a long, long time. Okay. Um, when, when an agency is kind of going back the other way and talking to an underwriter mm-hmm. um, and it's typically going to be to try to get a little bit better price, right? I mean, um, that always makes the selling the, the policy a little bit easier. And so by setting that conversation up um, and I might say something like, you know, let, let's say um, the quote right now is potentially uh, $20,000, you know, and I might say, you know, Josh, I'm, I'm looking for a $10,000 quote here. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So I'm setting this bar. That's very low. Then what I start talking about by comparison to that begins to seem more reasonable. So Maybe I feel like I could sell $17,000, but if it's possible to get it at $15,000, that's what I would like. And so I might say, you know, Josh, you're not looking for $10,000 here, Um, but it would be a lot easier for us. And I want to talk about us, for us to land this policy if we could come in around $15,000. Now you might say, hey, Brian, I you know, fifteen thousand dollars, that's that's just much too low, but I can still work my way towards that 17 that I really do feel like I can sell. So that's where I I've kind of planted a new flag that the comparisons are starting to come around. And I'm engaging the reciprocity because if you say no to my ask at 15. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still more likely to say yes when I concede and give a little and say, "Well, what about sixteen or sixteen five or something like that?" Um, that's how you're leveraging contrast in at the same time as reciprocity.
0: That makes sense. What would the downfall or, or the pitfall be of a person who? is kind of worried about using the compare and contrast with starting with a low number and just saying to their prospect or whoever, say, look, we can go back and forth with, you know, this, but the number needs to be, you know, 17. Let's just go ahead and do that. What's the risk of just trying to go, you know, right away and and get to that number rather than the back and forth?
1: Well, I think that when you go with your drop dead number, mm-hmm. um, you've got no place to retreat to. Okay, I'm saying I'm I'm guessing just like your customer, your mm-hmm. customer, if they could get that policy for ten thousand dollars, they would love to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you could sell it for twenty and and that was a fair price, you'd love to do that too. But most of the time. The, the buyer isn't getting as low a price as he or she wants and the seller's not getting as high a price. So you need to think about, um, you know, what is that walkaway price that I wouldn't be able to adjust any further past? Well, that's not where I'm going to start because then if they say, no, I've got nothing to retreat to. Okay. Um, just like if I were to negotiate with you and, and say, Josh, would you be able to get me the sales numbers by Friday? If that's when I need them and you say no... I'm dead in the water. Mm -hmm. Why not ask for those numbers by Tuesday? Mm -hmm. And then if you say yes, great. But if you say no, I, I have Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday to retreat to.
0: Okay, that makes sense. All right. Well, good advice on that. And that actually, uh, the, the the deadline date is the example that you use later on in this section. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you conclude this part by writing that when it comes to negotiations, it's not pessimistic to anticipate a no, but rather it's strategic and allows you to leverage the moment to provide a counter. And loyal readers, when you think of the compare and contrast tool, remember the phrase high-low. Mm-hmm. Um, So the next section, you begin this section by writing, um, which is consistency versus authority, which to use and when, um, that there's a common thread among the people that attend your workshop. And I believe this applies to me as well, that there is a confusion as to when someone should use the principle of consistency and when to use the principle of authority. And as a reminder, the principle of consistency is about people striving to be consistent in what they say, do, and believe. Mm -hmm. And the principle of authority focuses on expertise and trustworthiness. So you write that influence students understand both principles, but the challenge is the application of them. And so when someone uses the principle of consistency, it's about the other person. It's not about them. It's not about you. It's in reality, personal consistency will help in persuasion, but it's not the principle of consistency. Um, So in order to persuade someone, you need to think about the other person, what they've said in the past, done in the past, and their personal beliefs and values and you continue by giving an example of the upfront up close so in the book the example you use which loyal readers you can find this on page 30 is about buying a couch and what the salesperson can say to get the upfront close so I'd like to give the example here but I'd like to ask you to give an example of how someone who sells personal lines insurance can use the upfront close when speaking with the prospect so we'll go over the the book one and then have you give one for personal lines. so um, getting back to the furniture salesperson, here's how the example goes in the book. If we can get the color or if we can get the couch in the color you want with the matching pillows at the price we've been, we've been discussing, will you buy it? Mm-hmm. And it's only logical that the customer would answer with the following. If you can do all that, I'll buy the couch from you. And you write that the key is asking up front because once someone says that they'll do it, they're going to feel this internal pressure to live up to your word or to their word. So now that we've gone over the example from the book, would you mind going through almost kind of like a role play scenario if you want to do it that way for the loyal readers, for someone who sells personalized insurance and how they can use the upfront close when speaking with a prospect? Well,
1: so through the series of questions that you're gonna ask in whether you call it qualification or your discovery, you're gonna mm-hmm. find out what's important to that individual. I mean, most notably, you're gonna to wanna to understand how long have they been with their current agent? Why is it that they're looking, and what are they looking for? Um, <clears throat> they might tell you, they might be very upfront and say, look, I'm not gonna move unless I can save 10%. That's gonna then uh, give you a measure as to what companies you're gonna look for. But, but at that point, I'm going to start asking some questions to say, well, Josh, you know, you said that you're uh, you were with your current agent for seven years, which that is great. I I love the fact that you're loyal. I hope you're with us for much longer than seven years. Um, uh, But you're not happy with with the service because they're not getting back to you timely. The company that you're with has um, poor service. So. If we can provide better service to you in, in that, you know, the guarantee that we make is we're gonna get back to you within 24 hours if you make a phone call or send an email, and if we can get a carrier that, that you're satisfied with, that they're doing much better job on the billing, and we can save you that 10%. Is there any reason that you would not make this switch? That's mm-hmm. what I want you to say. No, if you can do those things, Brian, if you can mm-hmm. need that level of service and all these things. I am uh, happy to make that switch over to you. And then I'd say, great, Josh, I'm gonna go take a look at some of our carriers. I'm gonna get back to you within two days with a couple of quotes. And I'm certain that we can better the price that you've got right now and give you the service that you need. Now, it may not be price. It may be something else, but you need to find out what are those criteria that they're looking for. And that if you can nail down those specific criteria, you want to ask the question, is there any other reason? And I would even go a little further and I might say, um, so, Josh, there, there's no other reason. And, and the reason I'm asking this is, you know, in the past, I thought I was going to get an account. And it turned out that the agent was the brother-in-law. Um, your agent's not your uh, brother-in-law, is he? I, I'm going to ask those questions to make sure there's no other potential roadblocks. So that's how I would approach a situation like that. And, and one more thing that I would say in terms of setting that up, early on, I would say, you know, um, Josh, I'm sure if you're like most people that I've encountered buying insurance is not on the top of your list of favorite things to do. It's not like going home with a new car or a TV. Um, and so you probably don't want to spend any more time doing this than you need to. Um, I'd like to put proposition on the table that might save us both time. And if you say, well, sure, what, what is that? I'd say, if you'll be very honest with me about the specific criteria that it will take for you to make a move, I'll be very honest with you to tell you if I can or can't do it. And if I can't do it, I'll let you know and I'll remove myself from the quote situation. And that's one less agent you have to deal with. That's another way of setting that up to make it like a win for you, not just for me. But I want you to tell me, I don't want this to just be, give me your best quote. Because Hmm. all that says is, you know, if you don't have the lowest price, I'm not going to move. And therefore, you don't really value insurance, the coverage, the company, the agency, and all those other things.
0: Well, I, I really like both of those things, um, using those questions, because w- with our agency, we do pre-qualify, but I like your way of doing it a little better than what we've been doing in the past. So we'll, we'll be incorporating that. So thank you for that. And loyal readers, I hope you can use some of that information uh, when you're pre-qualifying and, and dealing with a prospect. All right, so now we have not and forgotten about the principle of authority for this section, and it gets back to. A person's own personal consistency, um, and then if you, as you know, loyal readers listening to this, you know, you always say yes. We always return calls and emails promptly. We routinely hit deadlines and perform at a high uh, perform at a high level. That increases your trustworthiness with your clients, which in turn increases your authority. Mm-hmm. So you end the section by writing. The big distinction here can make a big difference between using these principles, which helps you be more persuasive only if you use them ethically and correctly. So it gets back to our first episode in that everything that you are doing needs to come from an ethical place and not a manipulative place.
1: Yes. And, and you know, for the people who are listening, again, when I think of the principle of consistency to... Ethically persuade people. Consistency is about the other person, what they've said, what they've done, what they believe. Uh, Your personal consistency, when you routinely do what you say, that makes you more credible and trustworthy. Um, And one way that I always encourage people to highlight this so that Mm -hmm. the other person knows you're doing what you said. When I email people, if I say that I'm going to do something and then I email them, I usually will say, uh, Josh, as promised, Here's the information I said I'd get you.
2: Mm. A
1: little, as promised, highlights Brian's a guy who does what he says. And mm. when we routinely um, have conversations or communication that way, it becomes a marker for people to realize, hey, that guy always does what he says.
0: And mm-hmm. that's where the trust comes in. That makes sense, that makes sense. Well, thank you for that that information. So moving on to the next section, which is confirmation bias and the fan base. And you write about, uh, well, Brian, can you tell the story about the Ohio State football coach and what rocked Columbus, Ohio back in 2012?
1: Yeah, this was this was a long time ago now. But uh, mm-hmm. Jim, Jim Tressel, when he was the, the head coach at, at Ohio State, had a stellar reputation. He was called the the vest because he brought back the sweater vest and uh, mm-hmm. a man of high integrity. And, and he basically walked on water here. Um, and then he was. Caught up in a in a scandal where some of the players had sold some memorabilia, uh, were using it to get tattoos, and and there was a whole thing about whether or not he knew this was going on or not. The point of the chapter is um, confirmation bias, which is we look to confirm what we already believe. So mm-hmm. the people who looked at Jim Tressel and said he's a good man, he's a man of integrity. Their whole viewpoint was he did not do this and they'd come up with reasons, every reason they could find. But, of course, if you were a Michigan fan um, and you didn't like Ohio State and you didn't like Jim trussell it would be very easy for you through confirmation bias to find all the reasons why you think he did cheat.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and it, this is just to alert people that, that we all even though I teach this, I fall prey to it too. It is a natural tendency for us to to look for things that confirm what we already hold dear, what we believe, what we value. Um, That is a much easier cognitive process than looking for all the reasons to disconfirm what we believe or what we value. Um, And the chapter is really a word of caution to recognize that because it's very easy then to fall into the trap of, always justifying for example why your candidate is right and the other one is wrong and mm-hmm. never never ever looking at the other side to say well you know what everybody's human and they all make mistakes maybe this person made a mistake um it's it's dangerous for us to do that because it doesn't really get us to the truth it only has us sitting in our own truth
0: that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, thank you for telling us about that. And interesting that you mentioned Michigan because I was going to say um, the only fans that, or people that may have enjoyed listening to that story, were Michigan fans. Well, I, so.
1: I must, I must say this. You know, people from Michigan, if they meet somebody from Columbus, they'll, they'll typically say to me like oh, you're probably an Ohio State fan. You probably hate Michigan. And I say, no, I love Michigan. I wish we could play them every week. We'd be national champs because we've had so much success against Michigan.
0: <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Oh, that's very good. Um, yeah. So getting back to the book. So you write that you know the reaction to the news gives us insight into how influence works because like you said, the supporters of Jim, Jim Trestle were looking at the situation differently from those who were not. And that gets, of course, back to the confirmation bias. So the basis for confirmation bias that you write about is that most people look for information that confirms their own beliefs. And so this is why people who are Republicans or Democrats can look at the same situation and have differing opinions, regardless of what is right or wrong. Um, And a couple other examples that you give is a criminal prosecutor and a defense lawyer looking at the guilt of a person Mm -hmm. or our personal beliefs about race, religion, sex, which we will definitely not go into on this podcast. Um, You continue on writing that people who are selective in what they choose to consider and how much weight they place on certain information that dictates their decision making. And so what we all have to realize is that we're all impacted by confirmation bias every day. So it's not a matter of if we can abstain from it, it's being able to recognize when it comes into it. So uh, the, the question that I have for you is this, does this mean that people who are in sales or business, should they only try to do business with people who are like them, even if the person is trying to minimize their confirmation bias, The other person that they could be dealing with may not be able to, so it may not be a battle worth fighting. So what's your opinion on that? Should you just try to do people who are like you, or does that not really matter?
1: Certain things I think are extremely important. And I think doing business with people who value what you value. So as an independent agent, and and you value the things that you bring to the table that somebody may not be able to get from uh, a direct writer or if they go online. If somebody doesn't value that, if you don't have that in common... It's probably not going to work very well. It's not to say that you won't convince some people that the independent agency route is better, but you'll have a lot more success when you're working with somebody who already sees some value in dealing with an agency who's got access to many markets. But when it gets to a personal level about Mm -hmm. will I do business with you because you are like me, I always encourage people that. You can find things you have in common with somebody else, and it doesn't matter how different you may seem on the surface. If we find that one thing, and you know, we've used this multiple times, but we cheer for the same team, at that point all bets are off, right? Anybody who cheers for my team is is obviously a good guy or a good lady, and you probably right. really feel that way too. So right. it's a matter of how skilled can you become at using questions to uncover things where you can say, hey we've got this thing in common. So all of a sudden it kickstarts liking and that person's liking you in return. And that way you can find somebody that you can do business with.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. So you end this section by writing about when you try to understand the other side, rather than sh- just trying to convince them that you're right or they're wrong, it opens up the conversation. And for me personally, I have a good friend um, who's a fellow insurance agent. Her name is Alicia Kavanaugh, and she's actually been a guest on the other podcasts on the AI Podcast Network. And when I first met Alicia, um, and what has basically stuck with me to this day is that she's one of the most open-minded people that I've met. She does have... You know, very strong beliefs and convictions. But when she talks with people, she finds out why they feel a certain way or why they hold a certain belief. And she generally wants to learn and understand that. And because of that, um, she hasn't, she doesn't know this because I haven't talked to her about this or mentioned this, but she's had a profound, a profound impact on how I view things and trying to see the other side. So I want to just publicly thank her for that and for being a great friend over the last four years. So with that, let's move on to the next section, which is because I said so, mom or dad. And this for me is actually my favorite tool in the tool belt. And as I've mentioned in prior episodes is one that I've been using in my own agency since I first read the book. So you begin this section by writing that our parents have actually conditioned us from a very early age mm-hmm. to comply with people's requests with the use of one single word. And that word is because. So the word because can actually help you get to the front of line and not just have someone fall into line. And you write about the study that behavioral scientist uh, uh, Ellen Langer did with the copy or or copy machine. And the study was for a stranger to walk up to a person who was using a copy machine and ask if they can use it. So they did it three different ways. So in the first iteration, they said, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Mm -hmm. And in that case, 60% of people allowed it. The second iteration, the stranger said, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the uh, Xerox machine because I am in a rush? And 94% of people said yes. Hmm. And then in the third iteration, the stranger said, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I have to make copies? And 93% of people said yes. And to me, this was mind-blowing because I didn't expect the results to be so close. And as you write, there is no difference between a valid reason and a bogus reason. So the fact that a stranger used the word because Mm -hmm. it worked. So Brian, do you have any insights you'd like to share regarding the study for the loyal readers, for them to be able to use it in their personal or in their business life?
1: Sure. Um, Most of the requests that we make to people are somewhat mundane. Um, Mm -hmm. They did some variations in that study. And when somebody had 20 pages that caught people's attention and very few people were willing to let someone with 20 pages go in front, whether mm-hmm. or not they use the word because. But So it's not like I'm going to say, hey, uh, Josh, could you give me a million dollars because I want to buy a house? <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? But yeah. if I said, hey, Josh, could I borrow $10 because I need to get a couple cups of coffee? That might be almost a no-brainer.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but using because is still helpful as we saw in the study. So a way to incorporate that at home. When you're interacting, for example, with your kids, um, don't just tell them what to do. First I'd say ask instead of tell, and then Mm -hmm. give the reason. So I might've said, instead of saying uh, to my daughter, Abigail, empty the dishwasher. Abigail, would you empty the dishwasher before you leave for school because we have company coming over? Just Mm -hmm. that simple. Now, if she says, "Um, I can't dad, I'm in a hurry. I'd say, well, wait a minute. Will you empty it as soon as you get home before you leave for work? And almost every time she'd say yes. Now, really, I didn't care when she emptied it as long as it was empty by the time I got home. But I gave myself a fallback position. I Uh asked instead of tell. I gave her a reason using the words because that's a very different sentence in communication than the typical parent who basically says, empty the dishwasher. You gotcha. in that habit and it spills into the other relationships. So all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're telling less and you're asking more and you're thinking about the fallback positions and you're giving a reason using because this is the difference where I think somebody can be successful versus someone who's wildly successful because they communicate in a way that science clearly says is more effective.
0: That makes sense because it's not a magic wand or a silver bullet, but it helps with the ask rather than the tell
1: absolutely and, and part of that the conditioning is so many people grew up and when they ever when mom or dad said to do something if they ever said why the response was because i said so mm-hmm. and, and as a child you didn't say well mom or dad that's not a valid reason you better get in gear and, and do it or there was going to be a consequence and so that conditioning is still with us as we get older
0: that makes sense that makes sense So you go on to write that social psychologists say that people don't listen beyond the word because um, it's like we talked about in the last episode about kind of being on autopilot and how many of our decisions are done that way, like driving yourself to work. Um, You then write about understanding how the word because it's used and how it can affect you. So the first way is actually to protect yourself from having it used against you. And the second is by using the word because for how you'll be able to be more persuasive with others. So Brian, would you mind telling the loyal readers a story, which is found on page 34 about you and your daughter, Abigail, when you went to the mall to buy an American idol CD.
1: So my daughter and I, ever since she was little, We would go to a coffee shop and we would sit down and and even when she was six and seven years old, I would talk to her and I'd say things like, you know, Abigail, when you get older, boys are going to ask you out on a date. She'd say, what's a date? I would tell her and I said, so you need to get comfortable having conversations. What's your favorite color? And we would just have these conversations uh, at a very young age. And I've always felt like teaching her some of the things that we're talking about would serve her well. So I told her the story about the copier one day when we were, I think, at Barnes and Noble having something to drink. Many, uh, it would seem like it was years later. We're watching American Idol back in the day when they still were producing the CDs, and Ryan Seacrest on a commercial is near the front of the line, and he's trying to get into line, and everybody's pointing him towards the back. He ends up in the back of the line, mm-hmm. and out of nowhere, my daughter goes, "You should have said because." And I looked at her and I go, "What?" And she goes, dad, don't you remember the copier story? He should have said, because. And I was blown away that she remembered that. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize, too, what a great skill as like a 10 or 11-year-old, what a great skill she has now uh, because she understands that particular principle.
0: Yeah. that What I love about this story is your daughter's reaction to when you said, you know, when she said he should have said because and you looked at her with surprise and she responded the way that she did, because I'm just envisioning your daughter kind of rolling her eyes, tilting her head to the side when she kind of says it to you like, come on, dad, uh, wh- why couldn't you remember what you told me and taught me? And
1: for the same reason, my wife pulled the wool over my eyes to get to exactly. Florida.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you conclude this section by writing that the loyal readers need to look for ways to use their new understanding of the word because. Mm-hmm. Um, The next section is decision-making and rationality. And this section, it's fascinating to me, which when I was getting ready for this and kind of putting my thoughts and my notes together, and I had used the word fascinating, it's also a word that you used right here in this section. And and subliminally, that's why I use that. So it was, yeah, it was very interesting to me. Um, So what's fascinating about um, it, it's about the surveys that I believe you conducted it. So tell me if I'm wrong in that assumption that this survey that we're going to talk about was it one that you put together yourself?
1: I did. I, having read a lot of books on behavioral economics and some of mm-hmm. the things, I wanted to find out, you know, how would people who were reading my blog at the time respond to similar type questions? And so okay. I kind of did a A/B study where I gave half of the li- half of the readers questions in one format, and the other half got them and then was able to do a very clear comparison on the results. And, and I must say that the results that I saw from readers lined up extremely well with all of the research that I've read about through behavioral economics and social psychology.
0: Very. Uh, who were the, the participants? Was this something that you did at uh, State Auto or was this something that you did with other people?
1: It, it, uh, some people who were blog readers at the time worked at State Auto and a lot of People were just individuals who had found me on the internet and started following Mm -hmm. the blog for years. Um, But I had some four or 500 respondents, I think.
0: Wow, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of answers to go through and sift through. Yeah. Um, So you said that your goal with the survey was to see how people would respond to certain scenarios by using slight variances to each question. And by the end of this, loyal readers, you'll be able to see how powerful your words are and how you need to be cognizant of what you say and how you say it. So we're not going to go through all 10 questions. If you'd like to read about each one, this begins on page 35 of the book, but we'll cover the majority of them. So, question one begins, and I, I believe it's the same question on each survey. It just begins with asking about the participants' gender. Right. Um, question two is where you begin with the slight variances. So, survey A asks the participants to enter their four digit birth year, and survey B asks the participants to enter their two digit birth year. So, 1963 versus 63. Mm-hmm. Question three asks, if you could get paid what you really believe you are worth, not what you'd love to earn, what annual salary would you ask for? And this, Brian, is where you can see the impact that the first two questions have on this answer. So the results were the, uh, the results were those that entered a four-digit birth year thought that they were worth 147000 versus those that entered a two-digit birth year thought that they were worth 142000 and then the survey also showed that women believe their worth were was one hundred twenty six thousand, as compared to one hundred sixty one thousand for men. So, Brian, can you explain to the loyal readers how priming impacted the participants' answers for these first couple questions?
1: Yeah, priming priming is um, based on a lot of research from a man named John Barg, where uh, things that you might not think about can have an impact on how you um, answer questions, how you score on tests and things. For example, um, I think he cites that um, Asian women, when mm-hmm. they have to put their gender on a test, they tend to score lower than when they don't put their gender because there's negative stereotypes in some Asian cultures around uh, female versus male. Uh, some of the same things with eth- ethnicity, uh, people tended to do better on tests when they didn't put their ethnicity when they, versus when they did. So wondering that that's where I was like, well, I wonder if there's going to be a difference between men and women. Uh, and, and clearly there was women thought mm-hmm. that they were worth a lot less when asked that question versus men. The other priming was the number. The number 1,963 is much bigger than the number 63. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the research suggests that that would impact the number that people would maybe put forth. And while the difference between 142,000 and 147,000, the average for men and women, wasn't Mm -hmm. huge, that $5,000 difference when you compound it over let's say a 20 year career where you're getting 3% raised, it becomes a big number down the road oh yeah so uh so that's where it really becomes um statistically significant but again it's just to show that um when we have to put something um like our age we might think negative more negatively about elderly versus young or our our ethnicity or sex all of that stuff does have an impact on the subconscious part of our minds and it can bear out in, in a number of ways.
0: Yeah, very. I, I wonder for the men when they answered because they answered so much higher, I wonder if men in general tend to overthink their value versus women who may be more realistic with the value. I don't know if- I don't
1: know, that would be a total guess yeah. on, on my part. But what I would say to this too, if you, if you had to- create a test question mm-hmm. something like that and you want to remove that bias you mm-hmm. ask those questions at the end it would be okay. at the end you'd put in um what is, what is your birth here uh what is your race what is mm-hmm. your uh sexual orientation because then everybody's answered the question without being triggered about mm-hmm. those particular things
0: it would be interesting if you did the survey again and did did just that to see how it would uh It would it would do so. All right. So question four is the next one we're going to talk about, which is about gambling and potential winnings. So in survey A, the participant is given the option of having an eighty percent chance of winning four thousand dollars, or a one hundred percent chance of winning three thousand dollars. And in survey A, seventy four percent of people chose the one hundred or hundred percent bet rather than gambling for eighty percent. In survey B, the participant is being sued, and they have a chance, an 80% chance of losing 4000 or a 100% chance of losing 3000 and 56% of people decided to go for the 80% chance rather than the 100% chance. And you write that many studies show how people dislike loss more than they appreciate gain, even if the dollar amounts are the same. Mm. So, Brian, can you provide some advice on how insurance agents can use this principle or or, or this pain avoidance versus pleasure seeking mm-hmm. when talking to a prospect. And if you can tailor it more towards the commercial lines agent, that would be great. So is there yeah. anything that you can help us out with?
1: Well, you you certainly want to point out what somebody doesn't have when you're making your proposal. So mm-hmm. rather than saying, you know, hey, Josh, you know, we reviewed everything and I think you're gonna be happy with what we've done. We've included a, a number of extra coverages for you, right? That's not really highlighting um, the fact that I would say, you know, Josh, as we did your proposal, you might see it's a little bit higher than what you're paying currently. But that's because there's a number of coverages you don't have. And I've Mm -hmm. done this now for more than 30 years. And there's some critical coverages um, or limits that you don't have, right? I'm alerting you to what you're missing so that when I do make that presentation of the quote, first of all, I've already alerted you that it's going to be higher. It's not uh, coming out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably would use some comparison there too. I might say, but don't worry, Josh. It's not like it's not 30% higher because you mm-hmm. better not be 30% higher. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. we see that it's only 5% higher. That's no big deal. Right. Highlighted what you are missing, not just what I'm giving you. And that may mm-hmm. seem like a subtle distinction to to listeners, but it goes back to what we talked about in an earlier episode where I said, if I were a financial advisor telling you, you'd have an extra 150,000 in your retirement account will not be as motivating as telling you, if you don't take certain actions, you'll lose $150,000 of your retirement savings.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. So just, yeah, framing it in a way that will bring about a, a more favorable response. And it's not in an unethical way, because you're just changing ha- how you're framing it.
1: Exactly. And, and because you are a professional, and your job is to offer the best protection possible, you're highlighting what they don't have, not in some scare tactic way, but truthfully saying, you don't have this coverage. You don't have these limits over here. Now, if they say that's too expensive, you can peel some of that away, which then makes your price, by comparison, start looking better. But you also can use scarcity to highlight the fact that, um, I I might say, um, you know, Josh, right now you You don't have an umbrella policy. And again, based on my experience, I think it is a critical coverage in our society today when people are sued for such large amounts. We can take that away, but I don't recommend that. Now you're Mm -hmm. really thinking long and hard. Do I want to give that up? He's right. I do read about these big lawsuits and things. That's only a few hundred dollars more. I don't think I want to roll the dice on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's making making sense. And and that is something that we do in our agency with kind of trying to frame it in a way of you're going to lose out on that, um, specifically with umbrella insurance. Um, Now, Skipping a couple questions, we'll go to question seven, and that has to do with splitting money. So in survey A, the participant is playing a game and given $100 to share with another person. So the choice is up to the participant who's given the money to decide how much to give to that other person. Mm -hmm. Now in survey B, the other person is given the money, not the participant, and the participant is asked what would be a fair split. So in survey A, the average response was $50.38, and in survey B, the average response was $47.76. However, 87% of people in survey A and 84% of people in survey B said that $50 was the fair amount. So you write that the interesting part about that is that fair meant an equal split, but in reality, any amount you would leave with would be better off than you were before. Um, Now, before we discuss this question, I want to go over question nine because it's similar and then kind of compare the two. So question nine, again, has to do with splitting money, but you're playing a game with a partner. And in this, in survey A, your partner is given the $100 to share. And you both get to keep the money, but only if you think it's a fair deal. Mm-hmm. And two-thirds say $50 would be fair. The other third said that less than $50 would be fair.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, in Survey B, you're given the $100 to share, and you both get to keep the money, but only if your partner thinks the deal is fair. So 93% of people said 50 would be fair, which is much higher than the first. Mm-hmm. So can you explain the difference between how the outcomes played out in these two questions and what the loyal readers can learn from these? two questions to put into practice in their own business and personal lives well
1: what i really would want people to understand is we first of all if you look at a purely rational view of this if i have a hundred dollars and i can give any amount of that to you a rational person could say to themselves well if i give josh one dollar Mm-hmm. He can do anything to earn it. He's better off. He's got one dollar, and somebody would say a rational person like you, Josh, should say, "Well, um, no matter what, one dollar is better than nothing." And if I reject that, I get nothing. Right? That would be the most right. logical thing, but people don't make decisions based solely on logic. Feeling right. come into play, and that feeling of what we consider to be fair, uh, at least here in in America, is very traditionally a 50-50 type split. Uh, again, you, you've you done nothing to earn it. I've been given the money, and, and yet there's still this ingrained part of the vast majority of people that I should give you something close to half of that money. And you're feeling about that other person, he or she should give me something close to half of that, otherwise it's not fair. And you will reject your own self-interest Mm -hmm. let's say i offered you 40 bucks and you're thinking that's not fair i should have got 50 you're willing to give up 40 free dollars to kind of teach me a lesson a person that you might not ever see again that's not very logical but it's important to understand that's how people make decisions and so when you are dealing with somebody especially in a sales situation you better come across as somebody who is giving them a fair deal otherwise Mm -hmm. Not only will they reject it, they're going to probably go tell a whole bunch of other people. So it's very important that people who are listening to this really think about, you know, how will I be perceived? Will this be perceived as a fair deal? I need to right. make sure that I I uh, present it in that way.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You you don't, uh, what is the phrase? Uh, you don't bite off your nose to spite your face, basically. Right.
1: Yep. Yeah. But, but there But there will be a lot of people on the other end mm-hmm. who will do that. And it's, it's easy right. for other people to say, well, that's ungrateful. They don't have anything to begin with. They should just be grateful for what they got. But that, again, it doesn't take into account how human beings feel, which is right. their they're thinking.
0: Right. That makes sense. So you end the section with a quote about happiness and one that you believe is the secret to it. And that quote is, happy is the man who wants what he has. Yeah. And with that, we've reached the end of today's episode. So thank you, Brian, for joining me for book three, episode three of Influence People. And loyal readers, if you'd like to get in touch with Brian, please visit his website, influencepeople.biz, or connect with him on LinkedIn, Brian Ahern, um, A H. E A R N. Did I spell that correctly?
2: You did, yes.
0: Okay, perfect, perfect. So, when you're searching for him, uh, make sure that you uh, spell it correctly. Um, So, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Agency Intelligence podcast. And if you have 60 seconds uh, to spare today, please leave us a five star review on your favorite podcast because when you do this, others just like yourself will be able to find us. Um, If you haven't already purchased Brian's book, again, check out the show notes where there's a link to purchase it, or you can find it on his website which again is influence people Dot biz, And as a reminder, we are on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash explain this book to me. We'd love if you can like the page, connect with us. If you have any thoughts or questions, please email me at josh at agency hyphen intelligence.com. And loyal readers, thank you again for downloading the third episode of our third book of the explain this book to me podcast, where I sit down with authors, thought leaders, and visionaries to explain the book to them, have them answer questions that I have. So remember to be safe, be healthy, and love everyone. This has been Josh Lipstone with Explain This Book to Me.